This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Jeff. Hey, good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you or at home, uh, I am Ronnie Garcia, senior pastor here. And um, recently we started a sermon series on the book of Acts. And uh, if you'll remember, Acts is just like the origin story of the church. It's like the, the origin story. And so, uh, so far, we, right after Jesus is resurrected, we see Acts begins with the ascension. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The apostle Peter preaches the sermon of his life. And then last week, we saw the, the day after, right? In other words, what does the, what is the life of the early church look like? What is it, what is it becoming? Now, last week, uh, after, after describing the life of the church, in chapter 243, there's this verse. It said, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So we're going to pick up in chapter 3 this morning. But what we're going to see is an example of that verse. We're actually going to see that happen, this miraculous healing done by the apostle Peter, and then it's going to be followed by a speech, all right? That's what we're going to see this morning. Now, these incredible, miraculous stories that are included in the Bible, they're not there just as like gimmicky, show-and-tell stories, right, of the early church. These stories are put in the Bible very specifically to help us understand what the church valued, what they cared about. And let me explain why this particular ancient story is so relevant for modern people today. So each one of us comes from a particular tradition. Uh, we are indelibly shaped by our own preferences. And um, what happens is if we are not careful, our preferences can shrink our hearts to make us care about less than what God cares about. Um, surely you've now, modern people, you've heard about the phenomena of echo chambers, right? If you don't, an echo chamber is just an environment where a person only encounters information that rein reinforces uh, their own perspectives. So imagine being in a room, right, and you speak your opinion, and it bounces off the wall, and it comes back to you, and you're like, who said that? That's the smartest thing I heard today, right? You're just hearing yourself, right? Um, so you couple that with confirmation bias, which means, which, you know, we are prone to favor information that confirm what we already believe, you know, that kind of thing. And what happens is that redemptive and helpful competing, competing views are filtered out of our lives. Well, in our modern age, we are very certainly at risk of living in echo chambers, um, we're, we're liable to it, and may, mainly because of how technology is moving. There's this uh, filter bubbles. Y'all know what this is? In other words, it's, uh, it's this idea that algorithms from Facebook or Google um, are imp implemented, and they, information that is being fed to you is, is based on data that the algorithm has acquired, maybe like uh, your data, cl your clicking, 
behavior, the type of computer you're using, the region of the world that you live in. And it's curating all of this information into a bubble that, of your own sort of formulated interests and perspectives. And as a result, uh, you are not given information outside of your own preferences unless that information is specifically given to you to make you angry because they know what will make you angry, right? So this happens even in religious or irreligious secular circles and traditions. Um, even in the church, we have sometimes very lopsided values. Uh, even in the world, you'll see regionally lopsided values. Uh, this is true for religious fundamentalism. It's true for progressive liberalism. So how do we keep our hearts from loving less than what God loves? How do we ensure that our theological vision of the world is as big as God's affection for the world? Well, the answer is the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is the solution to our echo chamber problem. Because the Bible is written in a culture that's way outside of our culture, right? It cuts right through everyone's traditions, and it cuts right through everyone's preferences, the Bible both embraces and critiques everyone's side. And so the Bible destroys and it reconfigures these what I'll call trite dichotomies. It reshuffles the organizing systems of our traditions in a really helpful way. So ironically, no matter what the culture says, the Bible is actually the most important ingredient for destroying our echo chambers. And, and so we're going to see that in, a, in, a, in a, few, a few ways today. It's going to be a lot of fun this morning. We're going to see this amazing story of this miraculous healing by Peter and John, and then his exp explanation. And there's three ways that we're going to see that in our text. The Bible is going to teach us to care about both word and deed. The Bible is going to help us to um, Care, uh, it teaches us to care about both the now and the future, and it's going to help us to see humans as both, wait for it, depraved and infinitely esteemed and loved. So both of those things. So uh, for you note takers, word and deed, now and future, depraved and valuable. So would you stand with me and uh, let's give ourselves to uh, Acts chapter 3, the first 21 verses, and you have it there in your bulletin. Um, I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. I think your bulletins might be in the NIV, but it'll be uh, very, very similar. Verse 1 reads, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, 
All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, and, and he had decided to release him. When he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, recently I read a story, and I hope that it's not true, but I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, So a family... after church, they went to have you know, they went to a restaurant to eat and enjoy it together. And the re- and the the uh, waiter was hustling for them, working really hard to make sure this family had a nice experience, doing a good job. And so the family asked for the bill, and of course the waiter gave him the bill and um, went and did his business. When he came back to to get the the bill. Um, it said this, rifting, rifting on this passage that we read, it read this. This is what they wrote in the tip section of the, um, of the uh, receipt. He wrote, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. Believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. And instead of leaving a tip, they left those little tracks, you know, that are trying to scare people into heaven, a little bit obnoxious, y'all know what I'm talking about? And that's what he did. That's cringy. Right? That's pretty cringy. Uh, we see this and we say, uh, this is why people don't take Christians seriously, right? Because of this kind of absurdity. Uh, and we see this, that kind of behavior as being really rude and obnoxious. It's, and it's actually inconsiderate, right? The waiter doesn't make minimum wage, makes less, and he needs tips to supplement that and so forth. But here's the thing is I actually don't think that the father of this family, I don't think he woke up that morning thinking, hey, I want to be really obnoxious. I don't think that's actually how he wrote the script. It's just that he had come from a tradition, from his vantage point, giving an opportunity to believe in Jesus through this proclamation is the single most loving thing that he could do. And what good is a few dollars tip compared to the riches of heaven, right? That would be his mindset. See, for him, words, words are more important than deeds. Now, now the opposite extreme exists too, right? Uh, I remember serving at a soup kitchen, and uh, soup kitchen was, in a really important way, was 
regularly feeding people who had come on hard times. Uh, The soup kitchen was a religious entity, but they did not want to be perceived as religious. And so they had a very strict, don't talk about Jesus rule. Can't talk about Jesus. Now, while the soup kitchen uh, makes all the volunteers there feel really good about themselves because they're helping poor people, from the perspective of the recipient, they're keeping the poor impoverished through their techniques. Why? Because these people have more needs, a deeper need than just a hunger. They've, these are people, because of their hard times, have lost hope. They have, they've lost sense of their own dignity, no sense that they are made in God's image, right? There's no sense that they are so valuable to God that, that, that he sent his only son for them. And so this deed of this warm meal, instead of being a bridge to recovery, it actually became a dungeon where the helplessness of, their, of the people is reinforced, where they see themselves as worthless and helpless charity case. Does that make sense? But why would they do that? Well, from their perspective, deeds are more important than words. But it's spiritually disfiguring to do it like that. And what I love about this passage this morning is that there is no dichotomy between word and deed. The early church only knew both. Remember the details. Verse 1, Peter and John, they're going to the temple as was their custom. Remember to offer up these, the, the, the structured prayers that they had that they knew at the certain hour with their brothers and sisters while walking into the eastern entrance of the temple, which is known for its sort of huge and beautiful and gaudy and adorned gates. There's this crippled man sitting right at the base of the gates. And the richness of the temple now is in juxtaposition with the poverty of this man, who because now of his infirmity, because he's crippled, according to Jewish tradition of the time, he is not given full covenantal status. He can't just go win and worship. He stays on the outside. He's an outsider. So this crippled man is asking for alms, which that's an old word. I don't know if you know that word, but it's just, uh, where it's just about money or goods that are designated for the poor. And here's what I want you to notice. Peter and John, they look at this guy. They say, hey, bring it in. Look right here, right? This is really important. Verse 6, they say, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. He's saying, I'm going to make you more rich than this fancy gate and building. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man was healed. And Peter and John, they didn't need to leave him a track, right? They healed him. They did it. They provided something for him that he could not get himself. And just like verse 8 says, it says now he can, what, enter the temple with them. He's reconstituted. And he doesn't, he doesn't have to stay on the outside looking in anymore. So Peter and John, they provided for him. It wasn't just like, hey, man, you don't need money. You need Jesus. Oh, and here's a Bible, right? That's not what they did, Right? They provided for him through this powerful deed. But listen, this deed was not a naked deed. They prefaced it, right? Didn't they? What does it say there? It says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. All right. When he says things like in the name of, that sort of preamble, that is king kingdom language. 
So if you are an ambassador and you go forth, you are speaking on behalf of the king or under the authority of or in the power of the king. So they're saying in the name of Jesus and not just a generic God, not just like God in a generic sense, right? They're saying God did this. This is in the name of Jesus Christ. By the way, the one from Nazareth, in case there's any confusion, very specific, which one we're talking about here. See, the early church, man, they were not just a bunch of do-gooders. There was a specificity that accompanied their good deeds and their good works, you see. So, so we as a church, we want to imitate this pattern of word and deed. And we want to do both. So generosity of God's lavish salvation and a generosity of practice and deeds, right? Now, in our present world, there are these kind of two extreme poles, right? So on one extreme, you have the guy who says, he looks out into the world and he says, the world is a mess, it is a wreck. What do we need to do? We need to evangelize more, right? And so what, what would that mean practically? Um, the idea is that if a Christian, if someone becomes a Christian, they'll begin to behave Christianly, and that'll fix everything, the problem is, is that history shows that that's just not how it works. You know, I've cited this before, but of course, uh, the transatlantic slave trade, it's, this is a kind of a dark part of American church history, right, was often propagated by Christians, right, Southern Christians. I actually truly believe those Southern Christians who participated in the transatlantic slave trade were really Christians. I really believe they were Christians. But there was this disconnect, right, between what they were saying and their practices, so evangelizing didn't fix everything, did it? On the other hand, on the other extreme, you have the guy who says, the world is a wreck, right? The world is a wreck. We need social justice. We have the social justice guy. And so the idea where well, you see this, like um, maybe like there's a school shooting and it's tragic. And so uh, someone will say, hey, we, we want to just lift up. Our heart goes out to the families and the survivors. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for them. And then some congressmen very callously would be like, keep your prayers. We don't need your prayers. We need gun reform, right? So Y'all see like the opposite callousness to it? Both of these polls are giving into the word and deed dichotomy. Our response is biblical justice and biblical generosity, Right? So we do everything in the name of Jesus Christ with specificity. We take our marching orders from Jesus Christ. We advance his kingdom. We joyfully pray, pray the Lord's Prayer when he says, Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth right now the way it is in heaven, as it is in heaven. Right? We will generously, with deeds, pursue and support initiatives that result in human flourishing for all those who are made in God's image, not just people in our tribe. We do that. For we do both. So let's not even us get lost in our own echo chamber of the tradition of word only or deed only. Let the Bible kind of blow open the doors of those dichotomies. You see how that works? That's the first way that the Bible breaks us. Let's turn now to our second point. So the Bible teaches us about the word deed, um, you know, paradigm, and then also it teaches us to care about the both now and future. Now and future. 
Uh, you guys, y'all uh, been around me long enough now to know that I grew up in a solidly blue-collar home. Uh, my father's family immigrated from Mexico in the late 40s. And uh, my mother uh, was born and raised in Mexico, and she moved to the United States when she married my father. So we didn't have um, a lot growing up. It was very humble. But both of my parents are some of the hardest working people I've ever met in my entire life. I actually feel, a, the older I get, just this profound debt of gratitude to both of my parents for this inheritance of hard work. Um, but for as hard as they worked... Um, we did not have a lot, and our Christmases, Christmases at the Garcia house were quite humble. Most of the times, the presents that populated our Christmas tree were real practical. Christmas time was about getting a fresh round of socks and underwear. That was about it. Uh, my mom did make tamales at Christmas time, which was a real treat. In fact, I remember my father one time getting a $200 Christmas bonus, $200, and instead of paying a bill with it, he split it four ways because there's four children, and we each got $50. And that's like game-changing money for us. It was really, really humble. Now, that was what Christmases were like at the Garcias. But my friends, uh, our good friends that we lived with there on the southeast side of Houston, they, their Christmases were a little bit more extravagant. Um, I remember going to my friend Ryan's house, and he's a single child, and the, his tree was just populated with tons and tons of presents and gifts. It was like a cornucopia of presents. And, uh, you know, just the sight of that, of a tree with that many presents, kind of awakens the wonder and the imagination of Christmas, you know. Uh, like most children, Ryan, my friend, could barely contain the excitement, and he had a temptation to, like, break into the presents, to take a peek. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? We're all been guilty of that. So Ryan's mom, knowing this intuition of, his, of her son, she instituted a tradition. She, um, she instituted the tradition of you could open one present on Christmas Eve. You could open one present on Christmas Eve. Uh, when I heard about this, I'm like, I love that tradition. It's like, um, it's like getting a gift from the future. That one gift, it is real, it is delightful, and it is amazing in its own right, but it's just a taste of what would be coming, right? It's just a taste of what waits on Christmas morning. And on Christmas morning, there's going to be this fuller expression of what is real and delightful and amazing, right? Well, I'll tell you this story because the healing of this crippled man serves as an illustration for Peter's speech. And what we're seeing is that same foretaste of something that is coming. And it's this hope that Peter wants all of us and others to embody. See, when Peter and John, they see this crippled man, right? They don't say, hey, don't worry. Your legs are totally going to work in heaven, right? No, that's not what they did. They wanted to give him a, a gift from the future, a future reality, but that very day. And so verse 7 and 8, they say, the text says that they took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood and he began to walk. And it says that he was walking and praising God. In other words, he is doing in that moment what he is going to be doing for eternity. Right? It's like a gift from the future. And so what happens is that, that precise moment, that moment right there, was a sacred moment. 
Now listen, Peter and John understood that one day this man's legs, although they healed it, would one day fail him again, and he will lay in the grave. He would die. And for this reason, in verse 15, that's why he goes into this clarifying the work of Jesus. Look there. In verse 15, he calls Jesus the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So the body of Jesus was restored and resurrected. And that future reality, that future resurrection reality is actually absolutely central to Peter and John's hope. So the resurrection power of Jesus, right, broke into the now of this crippled man's life, healed his legs, but it also assured him that at the end of time, he would have a full resurrection. Christmas Eve and Christmas, right? It's just a taste. There's both the now and the future is really important to Peter. The early church, you guys, cared about both. Now, if that doesn't feel explicit in, in his healing, Peter makes this case again. Look there in verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Listen, that times of refreshing. You see that? And that that's an experience right now. At times of, that's an experience right now. Real, delightful, amazing. Times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that may, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, look there, the time for restoring all things about which God spoke. Did you see it? Y'all see that in the text? Because you can read over it if you're not careful. In other words, through your faith and repentance, God wants to give you a real sense of refreshing right now. And that refreshing is real and delightful and amazing but what's awesome is that this refreshing is just a small gift from the future. But there is coming a time when there will be a restoring of all things, a perfect and full refreshing, a full shalom, real, delightful, amazing, eternal. Do you see how the early church valued both the present moment and the future? Now listen, you guys, because some of you guys come, I know this about you, you come from a tradition where this present life is depicted in a really negative sense, right? You remember burning your secular CD music at camp, right? Your, your church didn't care about cultural artifacts or art. Uh, maybe you were never taught to care about the environment because according to that mindset, who cares if it's all going to burn anyway? Y'all remember that. That's how we used to talk. That mentality is like, why care about this life? It is like polishing brass on the Titanic. Have you ever heard that? What's the point? That is certainly, that mindset is certainly not how the early church felt. This life, this present moment, absolutely mattered. My, my wife brought to me the attention of a quote by Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a Supreme Court justice in the 30s. He says, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. <laughs> All right. Now, on the other hand, some of you, that's not, you didn't come from that background. You have been 
more discipled by secular intuitions. And God's heavenly future has absolutely no place of prominence in your life and in your heart. Perhaps, maybe, secretly, you doubt that life even continues after death. You are feverishly trying to make this life your heaven, that this is as good as it gets, and you must have every experience. You can't say no to anything. You need every comfort. You can't give anything away. You need every possible thing to make this life your heaven and to keep death at bay. Without a real value of future heaven, you will become incurably selfish and sick. Generosity is the most stupid virtue for the person who believes that this life is all that there is. Why would you give up anything? You got to make this life your heaven, you see. We will spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to keep ourselves alive for a few more minutes. Why? Because the now is all that we have. If you live like that, it will make you sick. Listen, the early church cuts deep against both of those extremes, doesn't it? It cares about the right now and it cares about the future. And, and we, as a people, need to give ourselves fully to both in order to imitate God's heart. Both of those things are right square in the heart of God, as it should be for us, you say. Okay, let me quickly summarize. So the Bible's breaking our echo chambers, right? It's shattering our false dichotomies by teaching us what God cares about cares about word and deed, cares about now and the future. And these, by when we value these things, it has a real effect on the culture of the church. It shapes what we're about, doesn't it, when we're, when we're well-rounded like that? Let me just use my final, my conclusion, just to, for one final tension that the early church understood. So this story shows us that humankind, this is the third one in the conclusion, is both totally depraved, humankind is totally depraved, and infinitely loved and esteemed, both. This reminds me of a famous quote by the late Jack Miller. He was a missionary to Africa and also um, a professor at Westminster Seminary. He would say, cheer up, you are far, you're a far worse sinner than you think you are. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you have ever imagined. Now, do you feel the, the, the tension in that sentiment? You're far worse sinner and far more loved at the same time. That is so present in the story. And you and I have got to understand this. And let me show you from the text. So after Peter and John perform this incredible miracle, they start drawing a crowd. They're absolutely astonished, right? Listen, I know that they're ancient people, but they knew that crippled people stay crippled right? They understood a miracle when they saw it, okay? They weren't like superstitious like we tend to project on them. They're astonished. Now, you would think that after performing this miracle, they would, you know, they would say, hey, everyone, you like that? Oh, I've just barely begun. Miracle. Pow, pow, pow. No, that's not at all what happened, right? What did they do? They actually start to distance themselves from God's power. That's what they do. They distance themselves. Look there in verse 12. It says, they say to the crowd, why do you stare at us? 
as though by our own power or piety, we made him walk. Like we, we dare not take any credit for any of this. We're a hot mess. This is all Jesus, right? Y'all see that? And then they go on this tirade to explain just how messed up the crowd is. Verse 13, they're like, you delivered and, and disowned and denied him, Jesus, in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. You killed the author of life. It was you. You guys did this. And they're like, I wasn't the centurion with the hammer. You know, they're like, you did this. Verse 17, you acted in ignorance. I mean, he's just getting after them. You and I are far more depraved and guilty and broken than we can ever comprehend. Peter's talking to us. But, verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. Okay, I don't know if you're reading right past that. He's talking about prophets that talked hundreds of years before Jesus. You see what he's saying? What Jesus is saying, you're all of those things, but God was never caught by surprise. He knew. God knew your depravity. He knew your perversity. He knew your selfishness. He knew your faithlessness. He knew your total depravity. And knowing that, even still, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die and to purchase you with his own blood. Why? Why did he do it? If he knew what he knew, because he thought you were supremely valuable, even worth the blood of his own beloved son. He would do anything to have you, anything to have you. And so while you are totally depraved, it's true, you are not worthless. You're not allowed to hate what God esteems. Just because we are broken and depraved does not mean that we are allowed to be cynical and to forget that we're all made in God's image. But at the same time, we are not basically good people. If that's what you think about humanity, that we're basically good, you're mistaken. We are not basically good people. Do not be naive. We cannot fix ourselves. Humanity cannot successfully complete a self-help, self-salvation project. We desperately need Jesus. There's, there's no occasion here for cynicism or naivety. We are not totally good, but nor on the other extreme are we totally worthless. We're so bad that Jesus, the author of life, had to die for us. But we are so loved that Jesus, the author of life, was glad to die for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If we can believe all these things together, we can do some really special things in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you confront us. We thank you that it just um, decenters us and 
reconfigures us. And Lord, when we have given into these dichotomies of word and deed or caring only about now or only about the future or when our view of humankind being good or worthless, when we have fallen into that trap, I pray that you would have mercy on us. Lord, thank you for these miraculous stories, stories that just enchant our imagination. Would you just um, change us and transform us? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing one last song together?